So you guys ready to dig in? Ready to dig in? Yes, no? Okay. Um, here's the deal. It is cold. It is rainy. You live in the state of Iowa. And what you kind of need to figure out, if you haven't figured this out yet, in the state of Iowa, there is what is supposed to be a change of seasons, right? It's supposed to go summer, fall, winter. But what you may encounter is this really short window that just automatically disappears into winter. And I think we're almost there. Um, part of this is me going on a walk last week and seeing Christmas lights up. I was like, what? Okay, another, another hot take. Can you skip straight to Christmas? Okay. 50, okay, hear me, hear me, hear me. 58 days until Christmas. But I would argue you can't skip straight to Christmas because Thanksgiving comes first, right? So here's the deal. Four weeks, four weeks from today is Thanksgiving. And here is why Thanksgiving has to come before Christmas, okay? Because we need a holiday that we can eat all the food and pretend we're thankful before we go spend a ton of money to show we're not. Yeah. Now we're getting serious, all right? Here's the deal. $20 billion, $20 billion, not million, B, billion, $20 billion are spent between Black Friday and Cyber Monday alone. And that's in anticipation for Christmas, right? And I'm not going to sit here and pretend I haven't been, you know, benefited from the byproduct of that. I think back to 1998, I woke up, six-year-old Jordan, I look pretty similar to how I do today without a mustache, but I woke up and I opened what at that point was the jackpot of Christmas presents, a Game Boy Color and Pokemon Red. Heck yeah. Charizard. My brother was a punk. He got Blastoise, Pokemon Blue. Not great, but... Here's the deal. We woke up that morning and we were thrilled because we had the newest Game Boy and one of the newest games. And we played that night and day until we went back to school. And even beyond that, we played it night and day until what? The Game Boy Advance came out. You kind of know where I'm going here. But before we go any further, I have to say, you need to cherish the days of actually getting fun Christmas presents, okay? Because I am now full-fledged adult, and last year we went Black Friday shopping and bought a vacuum. That's what it means to be an adult, okay? So if you're still in the, the age and era of receiving fun Christmas presents, soak it up. It doesn't last long, and you will soon be asking for socks and vacuums, okay? We know where we're going. We are a discontented people. We're discontent. And though we may not want to use these words, we are a greedy people. We're greedy. We want what we don't have. That might be the newest iPhone, the newest AirPods, the newest Dre Beats. I found out this week, some people want an instant pot. Some people want the instant pot attachment that turns it into an air fryer. We want new instruments. Nerds in the room, we want more books. Can I get an amen? Yeah. We want different clothes. We want new kicks. And we will one day either buy them ourselves or we will unwrap them and we will be satisfied for a moment. We will be satisfied for a moment. And then what's going to happen? These items, these objects, will either be thrown away handed down, 
donated, or they will end up contributing to the $38 billion industry of self-storage. And someone someday will bid on it in storage wars, and they will win, and they will hate what they got. That is the reality, okay? All jokes aside, what we need to know tonight is this idea of greed is a really big deal. Jesus teaches us tonight with a stern warning, okay? Greed is sneaky, and it is destructive. So our coffee obsessions, our need to DoorDash, our Target and TJ Maxx receipts, our shoes, our Amazon Prime wish list, these are a problem, okay? These are a serious problem, and Jesus warns about these with incredible threat. And so the question we need to ask tonight is, how do we cure our greedy hearts? Because we have greedy hearts. There's no question. Every person in this room comes in and wrestles with, fights against greed, or you give in. So what is the cure for greedy hearts? We're going to Luke 12. Flip there with me. Uh, Where we're going to be, Jesus has been teaching. The crowds are pressing in. And at the end of Luke 11, we actually see a little bit of uh, Black Friday action. People are like gathering. And then Luke 12, 1, people are trampling each other. Yeah, that's like reminiscent of Black Friday. Crowds gathering, people trampling each other, but it's not for the Roku TV. All right? It's because they want to hear Jesus teach. And what they're actually trying to do is catch him in such a way that they can condemn him. They're listening to his teachings. He's been a profound teacher. He's teaching a lot of things that are true but are challenging. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to catch him in a way that they can condemn him. So the crowds are pressing in. Jesus decides to turn his attention off of the crowds and onto his disciples. And he starts teaching them lessons that are just for the disciples. And then the nerve of one man we see in Luke 12, 13 decides, I'm going to interrupt Jesus. Bold strategy. See how it pays off for him. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell, me, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What is going on? This dude interrupts Jesus, and what he's trying to do is put Jesus in a position that he has to choose a side. Okay, culturally speaking, we can assume that this man is not the firstborn of his family. His brother is probably the firstborn, and in their day and age, the firstborn received two-thirds of the inheritance, The younger son received one-third. And so what this man is trying to do is come before Jesus and say, Jesus, tell my brother to split this with me. Let's do this thing 50-50. And what Jesus is doing, typical Jesus move, by the way, is he's going to say, hey, I'm not going to answer this, like, earthly material question. I'm going to start talking about spiritual things. I'm not just going to answer you about money or an inheritance, I'm going to start talking about your heart. What's going on in there? Because he doesn't want to just treat the symptom, he wants to treat the disease. And so Jesus starts to press in and he tells them, 
in verse 15, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. What is covetousness? We don't use that word a lot unless you're trying to quote the Ten Commandments and say, thou shall not covet, as if you talk like that. I know you don't. Covetousness, though, is this this word, a strong desire to have that which belongs to another. You want what you don't have. Another way to say it is greed. (laughs) And Jesus is saying this, take care and guard yourselves. You get this? Guard yourselves. This is a threat. Your shopping, your spending, your wish list, they're dangerous. They're actually there waging war on your soul. And so the question is, are you taking care? Are you guarding yourself? And not just against greed out there, but all covetousness. He covers this, all covetousness. Any sign or symptom that you might be greedy, greedy, are you guarding yourself? The problem is these things that we spend our money on that capture our attention and devotion, they, they promise us life, don't they? If you buy this, you will be happier. If you buy this, you will succeed. If you buy this, people will like you. But here's what they actually end up doing. They don't offer you life. They rob you of life. They rob you of contentment. They rob you of joy. They rob you of peace. They leave you enslaved. Because though you think you in a moment may gain something and then be happy, guess what you want more of? Anything. (laughs) You are enslaved to more. And though you just got the new iPhone, Apple has you figured out. They're coming out with another one soon, okay? And you're going to want that one. And then you're going to want that one. And then you're going to want that one. You are enslaved to more. And Jesus knows this is important because he doesn't just stop there. He could have just stopped right there. And it would, in my mind, seem pretty clear. Stop being greedy, okay? But what he does next is he actually teaches a parable because he wants to make this more tangible for us. So we're going to read that in verse 16. Pick up with me. He, Jesus, told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, because we all do that all the time. Soul? You don't do that. He does though. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is pretty... Pretty profound here, okay? The land produced plentifully. What Jesus is trying to show here is that God is the provider. It doesn't talk about how skillful of a farmer this man is. Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that the land produced plentifully. This is God's doing. He is the provider. And guess what? He has blessed this man with an abundance. He's given him a ton. And from the outside looking in, this farmer is pretty intelligent. And he actually does what seems to make sense. God gives him a lot, so what does he do? He starts to plan. He reasonably begins to plan and say, this is a lot, this is a surplus, and what I currently have, I can't contain all that God has given me. So what am I going to do? I'm going to plan. 
I'm going to tear the old barns down. I'm going to build new. So imagine with me, you win this weekend's Iowa Lottery jackpot. $81.5 million cash option. Okay, So Sunday morning hits. You now have $81.5 million in your bank account. First off, do you think you earned that? The answer is no. Even if you went and bought a ticket, right? Guess what you would do if you found out you won 80, almost $82 million? You would fall on your knees and you would say, thank God. Because you would understand you didn't earn it. It's a, it's a blessing to you. You hit improbable odds and you took home this $81.5 million cash option. The question is, what would you do with it? I'm telling you what I would do with it, okay? Inside look on my life. Step number one, pay off student loans. Can I get an amen? Yep. Step number two, pay off my mortgage. Also a good move. Step number three, baller vacation. All right? I'm not talking just a little bit. I'd take a couple months, go to the other side of the world, probably go around Europe, probably end on a beach somewhere, just saying. I would buy a new pair of Sorel boots for 175 bucks. Saw them yesterday. They're freaking sweet. I would buy them. And if you know anything about me, you know I love minivans, okay? I'd probably buy at least two more minivans. Got to have one in each shade, right? <clears throat> All jokes aside, my response if I hit this, this $81.5 million jackpot would be a lot like the farmers. And I have reason enough to believe that, that yours would be too. As we look at the farmer here, what is the main word in his planning? Any of you guys pick that up? I. Yeah. He says it over and over again. What shall I do? I have no words for my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store my grain. I will say to my soul. And what he's also trying to say is, I will relax. I will eat. I will drink. I will be happy. Maybe we need to put this in our terms, okay? There's two different types of people in this, in this world. There's savers and there's spenders. Anybody a saver in here? Okay. This is how it looks for you, maybe. I will qualify for scholarships. I will live at home. I will work long hours. I will get my emergency fund established. I will find a career path that makes me a stable future. I will invest in stock, and I will retire young and rest when I'm 55, and then I will be happy. That is the saver mindset. Spenders, you don't have to raise your hand. It's every one of you that didn't just raise your hand. More of you than that are savers. Looks more like this, okay? I will maybe take out student loans. I will maybe uh, take money that has been given to me from my parents. Or, bare minimum, I will take money that I have worked hard for and I have earned. It is my money. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go spend it. I'm going to spend it on the latest fashion, the latest tech. I'm going to go out to eat with friends whenever they ask me to. I'm going to do what I want, and then I'm going to be happy. What does God say to this? Verse 20. But God said to him, he says to this farmer, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He calls him a fool. And the word fool here 
if you look contextually, it implies disbelief or disregard for God. What God is not doing, what Jesus is not doing in this text is teaching against having money or even planning financially. What he's doing is, he's not talking about the money, he's talking about the motivation. You're not looking at me, Jesus says. You're saying, I, 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 I. There is no regard for God in this man's finances. And this man accomplishes the American dream. He has all the wealth and prosperity he wants. He has the retirement package to relax, eat, drink, and not worry about anything except one thing, death. He plans, and Jesus says, cute plan. Guess what? You're dying tonight. Who's it all going to go to? And beyond that, he says, so it will be like you. Just like your possessions don't last, neither will you. His life has been demanded, and his definition of success does not outlive the death test. So the question is, does your definition of success outlive the death test? Play it out with me. Imagine this. Your dream life, my dream life, may be written for you. <laughs> Lived out. You graduate college debt-free. You meet a stunning spouse. You pay off your first mortgage in 10 years, which is early if you don't know that. Okay? You give your kids the childhood you wish you would have had. Name brand clothes, finished basement with a projector screen on the wall. A college fund so that they never have to worry about school. You retire at 60, and you and your stunning spouse get to travel the world. You get to see all the beautiful things that God has created. And at the ripe age of 85, you die at the same time, one final breath holding hands, not in a nursing home. <laughs> but the problem is, you die. Okay, You die, and what does God say to you? as you've dreamed, dream, lived out this dream life that you have prepared, what does he say to you? Fool. You are a fool. And none of us are beyond this, okay? I am not beyond this, and you are not beyond this. None of us are beyond climbing the ladder of selfish gain only to find out that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. We can accomplish all that we want to accomplish, and it's possible that in our dying day, we could look God in the face, and though it would be too late, we risk dying and finding out that our idea of success is de deemed foolish and a failure. And if that doesn't have you now on guard, it should. So what is the cure? What is the cure for greed? If this is so deadly and so sneaky, what is the cure? The cure for a greedy heart is a kingdom perspective, okay? The cure for a greedy heart is a kingdom perspective. And we see this command here in verse 21. Essentially, he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God, which implies, hey, you should be rich towards God. But what we actually need to understand before we talk about being rich towards God is understanding that God has first been rich towards us. That is actually our motivation, okay? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, I have it on the screen. Okay. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he was in heaven, though he had everything, yet for your sake, he became poor. He became 
born in a manger, born to a teenage girl, born amongst animals. He became a slave, a servant, a carpenter, one that would kneel and wash his disciples' disgusting feet. And he would die. A criminal's death, the worst death that anyone could have ever drawn up, is for the worst of the worst. And yet he would rise again three days later for this reason. So that you, by his poverty, in Jesus becoming poor in your place, so that you might become rich. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that good news? That God would give up his richness. That he would become poor so that a lowly person like you and a lowly person like me might experience what it means to be rich in God. To experience the fullness of God in his presence. That's phenomenal. Here's a coaching tip for you, okay? I know this isn't much of our culture here on Sunday, but it needs to be. If something is good news, you can say amen, right? Let it be so. This is good news. Jesus became poor so that you could be rich. That's good. We're getting there, okay? Uh, I'm going to flip real quick. Galatians 4. The dude at the front end of the text, he's, he's arguing about what? Inheritance, right? What he's trying to say is, hey, I want my brother's share of the inheritance. Well, Jesus actually does something about our inheritance that speaks here in this parable. But in Galatians 4, here's what happens, okay? Just read with me. In the same way, we also, when we were children... Before Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Think of it this way. Before Christ, you were enslaved to your greed. That's just a reality, okay? Your possessions had control over you. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Christ. He was born of a woman, born under the law. So he was fully man. Verse 5 to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus steps down, becomes a man, and dies so that we can become a part of the family of God. Insert amen. Okay. And because you are sons, because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. But a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That is the gospel. That Jesus would stoop down and he would die in your place and rise again so that you no longer have to be a slave. You no longer have to be an orphan. You get to be a son and daughter of the king. And therefore, you have an inheritance. Some of you know this, I just recently, my wife and I got the, the privilege of adopting our two boys, and I think through, that's a woo, that's an amen, come on. I started to think through this text and some of the orphan and child mindset, okay? Here is what is true of orphans, okay? They are insecure. They're not sure if they're going to get another meal. They're not sure if people will come back, and all that they know is the life in front of them. They do not know any life beyond their current present, okay? And that leaves them insecure and wanting more all the time. That is an orphan mindset. But here's what happens when you become adopted into the family of God, okay? You become a child and you become an heir 
And this is what it means to be adopted. This is what it means to be a child. You are secure. You have a provider. Your needs are being met. You live in the comfort of a stable family with a good father. And you have certainty because you have an inheritance. There is better life for you than what you once knew. This life, you guys, this is not all we know. We have an inheritance. We are heirs of the kingdom of God, meaning Jesus is going to return. He's going to make all things new. And guess what? You get to rule and reign with him. That's amazing. And so when you understand who you are in Christ, you actually gain this kingdom perspective that allows you to die to your greed because you're not an orphan anymore. You have security in Christ. Don't have time to walk through it, but in the verses following in Luke 12, Jesus teaches his disciples based upon this parable. He says, therefore I tell you, and he goes on to say, look at the birds of the sky. Look at the flowers of the field. Are they not cared for? They are. How much more valuable are you to me than they are? Therefore, don't worry. God sees you. He will provide for you. He is the good father to meet your every need. But he says this, seek the kingdom, kingdom perspective. Seek the kingdom. Invest in eternity. Stop worrying and stop wasting your money on things that can be stolen from you or things that can be destroyed. He talks about moth eating away at what you possess. Stop worrying and wasting about that stuff. Invest in eternity. This idea of giving, not hoarding. God is telling them, this is what it looks like to be rich towards God. To sell your possessions, to give to the needy. That's what it looks like. And in verse 34, he says this. Probably heard it before. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Trying to say, you want to know what you value? Look what you spend your money on. Okay? And so, if we are going to be a group of people that say, we love Jesus, we value God, the question is, how are we actually going to change as a result of this text? Because we need to put our money where our mouth is, literally. So I'm going to talk through three ways that this can change, okay? You've probably heard these lenses before, but heart, head, and hands. Okay, so we're going to start with heart. How does God want to change our heart? First off, he wants to change the way we feel about money. God, by his spirit, wants to lead us to repentance. He wants us to understand that he sees us in our lowest place. When we have been striving for life and joy and rest and security in our belongings, in created things rather than the creator, though that is damning, that is condemnable, God sees you there. And right now, he is saying, you have the opportunity to turn away from that and to actually behold my glory so that now your life, your joy, your rest, your security, your identity are now found in him. 
What God wants you to do is say, man, I see that you have been generous towards me. We talked about that last week when Kyler taught. We serve a generous God who has been incredibly gracious and he became poor so that we might become rich. And so our only natural response is to say, God, if you've been gracious and generous to me, help make me a gracious and generous person. We need the spirit of God to change our hearts. And next, I think God is asking us to to change our heads, to change the way we think. Here is the deal. You are not an owner of your money. It is not yours. It is God's money. But what he has called you is not an owner, but a steward. Stewards do not have ownership, but they are given responsibility to take what God has entrusted to them and do something with it. And so here is a simple quote that I have used before and that I ask you to use when you get money in your hands. It's four words. God's money, my responsibility. God's money, my responsibility. So when you get that paycheck and someone hands you that money, you can first and foremost say, I surrender. God, this is your money. It's not mine, it's yours. But it is my responsibility. What, you, what do you want me to do with it? What do you want me to do with this money? So after we have heart change, after we have head change, we change the way we think. Last, we have to change our hands. We have to change the way we act. Or in this case, change the way we spend or invest. So in wisdom, hear me when I say that, in wisdom, begin investing in eternity. And here's what I mean by that. Do not assume that your money is for you first. Your money is not first and foremost for you. That is what Jesus teaches against here. This I mindset. What he's asking you to do is to say, who might this money be for? Who might might I want to bless through you? Whose needs might I want to meet through your money so you think? I'm going to give you a few different options of how you can begin to do this, okay? First and foremost, give to the local church. And this isn't just me here. I don't, I don't reap the reward of your giving to Veritas Church, okay? What I actually believe is that if Jesus teaches you to do something, it is for your benefit. So as you give to the local church and you trust local leadership to say, we're going to take your giving for the expanse of the kingdom, here's what you're doing. You are helping in the expanse of the kingdom with your money, and also, you are fighting against greed as you surrender your money. So give to the local church. One way you can do that, shameless plug, you can give to Salt Company. So if you don't have a local church that you call home, Salt Company is a fundraised ministry. So if you have benefited from anything we have ever done, whether that be a Thursday night, a fall retreat, Gospel 101, you can give your money to Salt Company. We exist because we have ministry partners who have faithfully given their money month after month, year after year, so that the next generation, you, can be reached with the gospel. Coming up here at Veritas, we do this thing called 2535 bags. This is maybe a more tangible way for some of you that struggle with saying, oh, I'm going to like write a check or put money um, in an envelope. A 2535 bag is this. You come on Sunday to church, you pick up a bag with a grocery shopping list, and you go to Aldi, which is the superior grocery store, okay? 
and you fill up that bag with the things on the list and you bring it back and we donate it to people that are in need. That is a very tangible way that you can begin to invest in eternity. Invest in eternity. Or maybe, this is maybe a less, less tangible or specific, but begin setting aside money from every paycheck you get. And ask yourself this question, who can I bless? Or what needs can I meet? Okay? Who can I bless? What needs can I meet? And what I would challenge you to do to make this more specific, which just helps us apply more realistically, right? We love specificity because that's something we can actually go do. Determine a percentage. So if you want to say, hey, I'm going to take 5% from every paycheck and I'm going to set it aside, start at 5%. If you need to start lower than that, start at 2%. I don't care what percentage it is. Just begin to say, I'm going to set aside blank percent of every paycheck to give away. You know who does this really well? A woman by the name of Julie Howell. Yeah, it's my mom. She is a saint. Okay, here's the deal. Two years ago, I left the insurance industry, took a hefty pay cut, because I felt like God was saying, hey, Jordan, college students in Cedar Rapids need to hear the gospel. And I said, yup, you're right. And here's what I also had to do. I had to raise money. (laughs) And so, without even asking my mom, my mom is widowed, she makes a very average or below average income, without even asking my mom, she says, how can I support your ministry? And I'm like, well, here's a link you can give, but don't feel like you need to. And she says, no, I've been praying about it. I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to cancel my cable and internet, and I'm going to take that money, and I'm going to support your ministry. My mom has gone two years without cable and internet so that you can hear the gospel. She's a baller, (laughs) you guys. And here's the deal. One day she's going to get to heaven, and she's not going to look down and say, man, look at what I left behind. She's going to look around, and she's going to say, so this is what I invested in. And she's going to be proud. She's not going to have regrets because she's going to look around, and she's going to see the kingdom that she invested in. And you might say, man, I hope someday I can end up like Julie Howell. I know I do. But it's not just going to happen, okay? It doesn't just happen overnight. You don't just become generous. It's something you have to begin doing. You can't expect to be generous as a 60-year-old if you're not going to be generous as a 20-year-old. So your giving starts now. If you can't be generous with $100 in your bank account, you cannot be generous with $1,000 or $10,000 in your bank account. It has to start now. And yes, it does look differently. I understand that. But as you begin to just start to give, here's what's happening. You are tight-fisted with your money, and you start to give. This is what happens. You become open-handed. God is starting to loosen your grip on money. Or maybe better put, God is loosening money's grip on you. You're becoming free from your need to have possessions and wealth for yourself because you're investing in the kingdom. I've said this before. This is about obedience, okay? As we look at this command in Scripture, as we look at this parable that Jesus teaches, step number one, it is for God's glory. God's glory is always the point. He says, hey, invest in eternity because I'm worth it. And to that I say, Amen.
right? His glory is worth it, but also it is for your good. So do not miss that. This is a twofold command. Invest in eternity for God's glory and invest in eternity for your good. Because as you begin to do this, as you begin to say, God, you are worth my money. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. You will experience this verse 34. Where your treasure is, there there your heart will be also. You will experience more of God and you will begin to find the cure for your greed. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for who you are as a good and gracious and generous God. Jesus, thank you that you became poor, that you stooped down to the lowest of lows so that one day we might get to experience royalty, that we might get to experience what it means to stand face-to-face with the creator of the universe, that we might become rich in you, Jesus. Thank you that we are no longer orphans, but we are children, that we no longer have to fear or be insecure about what our future holds because you have said we are co-heirs of the kingdom. We can cling to our identity in you. Father, I can't help but think of Jim Elliott's quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God, would that be true of us in this room? That we would not be afraid to give up what we can't keep in order to gain or grab hold of what we cannot lose. So God, first and foremost, I pray that you would change our hearts. That you would actually press it upon our spirit to say, God, you have been gracious to me. Help me to be gracious and generous towards other people from that place that you would change our our minds. God, that we would understand money is yours, but you've given us responsibility. And lastly, that you would change our actions, that you would change our spending. That we'd be so secure in who you are and how you've provided for us that we can actually begin to give our money away for your name's sake. And we trust that as we do that, you will be glorified. As the gospel gets to be proclaimed, and that this will be for our good as we begin to experience victory in you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.